Welcome to the Leading and Learning Through Safety podcast, where we discuss OSHA, EPA, safety policy, safety training, employee engagement, and everything in between. Safety is so much more than a technical skill. It's a motivational need. It's a means of engaging your team. Safety is a meaningful business practice that makes a direct impact on everyone in the organization. Hi, I'm your host for the podcast, Dr. Mark French, also known as The Safety Dude. As a certified safety professional and nationally registered EMT, I am excited to share my knowledge and passion from experience in environmental health, safety, security, and human resources. I've worked in the automotive, foods, chemical, nuclear, and e-commerce fields. I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode as we talk through the current issues in environmental health and safety and how they can affect the culture of your organization. Hi, and welcome to this week's podcast. Uh, Again, so happy you could join me. And uh, as always, we're going to talk about the items that really drive safety. How are we leading? How are we learning? What are items that are happening out there in the safety world that's really affecting us, especially as us as safety professionals? And again, starting off, it's really about COVID. We are still, um, and I think we will continue to be, I say we are still, but the truth is we will continue to have to deal with it and work on it and evolve with what we're doing due to COVID-19. And it is evolving, and OSHA has been behind on all these complaints, all these items because of it. And so we're seeing a lot of catch-up that is happening because of COVID-19. And one of the interesting ones, this one was from Cal OSHA. They were citing, they're now moved on to grocery stores. So we saw an evolution of citations. It, It began with medical community. So it began with them being very, very behind because there was so much going on. And now we're, we moved into medical communities. So we saw a lot of citations for first responders, for hospitals and doctor's offices, those places that were that front line of where COVID was going. So you thought you were sick. Where did you go? To a doctor, to a hospital. How did they handle it? How did they protect their team? And now we're seeing that as expected, Um, it's moving into those essential businesses, those businesses that were allowed to stay open to keep servicing the population because they were needed in that being grocery stores being one. So we saw, we're seeing some of those citations being published for some of the early related issues of where they didn't adapt fast enough. And I think this is where we as a safety community really bring value to any organization that we're a part of. And that's what we expect from a safety professional. And that's something we do, that we research. And we're working hard to try to stay ahead of whatever is happening to advise our team, to advise our organization of the best way to handle whatever situation we're in. Even if it's a brand new situation, we're looking and trying to find commonality of other organizations and Are they doing something above and beyond, and can we do it also? And it's not just industry to industry. 
you can learn a lot from other industries. If you want to prevent infection, if you want to prevent any type of contamination, look at what the medical community is doing. Are there best practices that we can adapt? If we want to protect customers, how are they doing it live in any type of situation where they're shopping? So I think a great part of what we really bring that benefit is that we can cross-reference. And it was said best, I was working in automotive and we were having a chat and the person that was in the lead of where we supplied our product to their director of safety was like, there's nothing that should be a trade secret about safety. If we can protect someone, if we can save someone's life, there's nothing that we should hide that from. We should share it and we should be able to learn from it, especially a practice or a engineering change. And I think these cross-reference groups are great. And I think safety is one of those wonderful professions that you can bring a lot of safety people together and someone can talk about their experience in their world, in their industry and share it and be able to learn from it. So I digressed there a little bit, but I really love that part about safety. I love that we should be able to share that knowledge with each other and learn from it. And so here we're looking at the grocery stores and the cutting edge and what were they doing or what should they have been doing and didn't do fast enough. And some of these are shocking that they, they didn't, they were so far behind quite a few citations were that they didn't update the written programs to the new processes. There was no documentation of what should happen. So they were leading by email or they were leading through just uh, stand up messaging versus documenting it, making it something that was sustainable for this time period. And maybe they thought it wasn't going to be something. It may have been that, hey, we're going to do the two weeks to flatten the curve. And now we're here six months later and we still haven't written our program. So you've got to be able to be ready to adapt to those things. Of course, physical barriers, not putting up the plexiglass to protect um, the workers and the customers from that exchange. But one of them that really got me was that they, of course, included new disinfecting procedures. Maybe they changed cleaners to something that was certified to uh, eliminate COVID or at least reduce it to a certain level of certainty. And they didn't update their HASCOM program to that. They didn't get the safety data sheets. And there's no reason that that shouldn't happen. Even if you're bringing in a chemical to test it, if you're walking in the door with it and you're going to be exposed to it, you better have a safety data sheet. That's not something that's new. Um, putting out plexiglass, yeah, that was new. And maybe you were going to be able to avoid it for a little while. But nothing to do with chemical knowledge. You had to be able to have that ahead of time. So we're seeing some grocery stores that are getting hit with some basic safety items, such as like, how do you use, did you train your team on how to use this new cleaner and disinfectant? Did you train them on the hazards of this new cleaner or disinfectant? Just because it's a cleaner and you've used cleaners before doesn't mean it's the same thing. You have to train your team on that. And failing to do that certainly is something that has to be cited. And so we're, this is an interesting one from that standpoint. I really like that because it hits on the fact that we miss some of the basics. Some of these organizations now, whether they have a safety professional leading this up or not, they need one. 
at this point. They need someone who's going to lead this up because they missed the basics. They missed the basic of having something as simple as a safety data sheet. And I know that a lot of companies, as they were evaluating new chemicals or having to get creative with chemicals, that they had to find safety data sheets. So if you live anywhere near distilleries, so uh, I'm from Kentucky, big bourbon country, a lot of distilleries during the pandemic early on, like March, April, May, quit making um, or at least dedicated part of their production to making hand sanitizer or spray on alcohol-based cleaners. So they were converting a lot of their work and giving it away in some cases to schools and hospitals to help with anything they could. And the industry actually published a safety data sheet on that. So like the bourbon community got together and you could plug and play with um, a safety data sheet. So if you bought it from whatever company, you would put their name in there and you could just print this PDF. It was a fillable form that you put in where you got it from, their address, and it was a stock process for knowing that you now have this new sanitizer and you had a safety data sheet. So I appreciate what they were doing there. They really thought ahead. Not only did they make it, they got together as a group and created a stock page for safety data sheets. And all you had to do was research it, find it, and print it. So it was very helpful. And when we were scrambling to find those items, and a big shout out to the distilleries for doing that, um, I thought that was fantastic. And actually, I shared some of that knowledge that if you have anyone and you're still lacking for hand sanitizer, reach out, see if they still have any. Some of them still have a little bit of stock available that they were using. Uh, one other thing to talk about here real quick is that OSHA released in their FAQs about COVID-19. Um, they don't tell you when one's released. You kind of got to find it. But they did release uh, something new in their FAQs about the term incident. So people weren't sure about, okay, I have a COVID-related hospitalization. Done the due diligence, probably going to be work-related. When do we call OSHA for that? And is the incident at the time of diagnosis of COVID-19, or is the incident when we think the contact happened at the workplace where they could have been contaminated? So OSHA has... Uh, define that a little bit more clear as the time of the exposure, not the time of the diagnosis. So if you're following those videos and you're looking and you're thinking about how do we report that, hopefully you're reporting that because they are following up on those, that um, it is on the based on what you find for the potentials of them, of the contact happening. And I'll close out this first part of the podcast about COVID-19 with something a little interesting. This one came from a restaurant, online restaurant um, review process. They did a, a survey of customers and they asked like which chains that you've been to of dining, which ones were taking COVID the most serious. And this was, of course, personal opinion. So take it with a grain of salt, but it's interesting to see public opinion of these consumer chains of how well they're reacting or how well did I feel, how good did I feel that this restaurant is taking COVID seriously. And for casual dining, uh, Texas Roadhouse, Seasons uh, Top Rated, uh, Red Lobster at the bottom. Uh, then you have Cracker Barrel and Village Inn for Family Dining. 
Uh, IHOP not doing so well on that one. Nuke's Eatery uh, doing very well. Uh, Zaxby's and Panera Bread not as well. And then Quick Service, Quiznos, and taking the top lead there. And then Arby's and Checkers not doing so well. And again, that's personal opinion. This was published in Restaurant Business Online. Since I said some names there, I want to make sure I call that out of where I got my data. I'm not just making it up. <laughs> But that's uh, interesting to see that we're now polling people to see how safe did you feel while eating there. And, of course, that begs the question that if you didn't feel safe eating there, why did you stay? Anyway, more podcasts coming up in just a moment. TSD Amalgamated, your partner in safety consulting. Find them on the web at tsdamalgamated.com. With over 15 years of experience in various industries, setting up ISO, TS, and RC systems, the professional team at TSD Amalgamated is ready to help you take your safety program to that next level. TSD Amalgamated is skilled in technical and behavioral auditing, From training employees on OSHA compliance standards to helping your leadership team see how safety can help drive real organizational change, TSD Amalgamated is there to be your partner. Their process is not a fill-in-the-blank policy or training process. They want to know your team, your needs, and create processes that create total organizational ownership. TSD Amalgamated. Where do you want your safety programs to take you? www.tsdamalgamated.com And welcome back to the second half of the podcast. So kind of a reoccurring theme ever so often that pops up is about machine guarding because it's still something that can create very serious injuries when it's not used the right way. And so as we enter the second half of this chat that we're having, uh, really looking at some news stories that came out more about conveyors and machine guarding. Unfortunately, this one here is about a fatality in Georgia. A wood manufacturer has been cited for $55,000 because someone was caught up in a conveyor system and was killed. And so they're going to, of course, they have the chance to fight the citation, take it before reviews, whatever is needed, if they feel like they weren't in the wrong. And I think that's really what kind of triggered this is I found two articles that kind of take me back to back here. The first one being this citation that just happened. And very unfortunately for anyone to lose their life at work, that's something we never want to see as safety professionals. But then another one that in September, and just now kind of getting caught up on this one, the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission looked at a uh, a guarding, and it was a conveyor guarding, that um, they overturned it. They, They vacated the citation because what they found was that the guard was in place the right way, that it was sealed up, that it would ha- it had everything it should, that the company had done their due diligence to predict, or they couldn't have predicted, 
that the person would have loosened it up just enough to put their fingers up under the guard into the the moving equipment. So OSHA cited them based on saying, hey, you had inadequate protection for this crushing hazard of this piece of equipment. But what had happened was the employee had loosened up the guard in some form or fashion and that they were trying to reach up underneath it and actuate it manually. And so I guess there was the talk. I'm I'm sure there was arguments of how long had it been that way? Who did it? Was it a standard practice? And evidently it was found that this was something that was not a standard practice, that they would not have thought about it, that the company had no, uh, no way of knowing that this behavior was occurring. And so they vacated the, the citation on this one and which is, so what they say is the occurrence of injury does not itself by establish that it was non-compliant. And so it's good to see that it's bad and it's good. So from a safety professional standpoint, I, we have the hardest time predicting the individual. And that's a philosophy that goes back to a lot of different things. And of course, you can read different books about how we predict the the masses. Like we do a lot of statistical analysis and safety and we try to play to the statistics. We're always trying to drive down the biggest numbers we can. And sometimes it's an individual choice that leads to what is happening. And this was one of those circumstances and this one in particular with this guarding is that they could not have predicted that the person would have thought to either loosen or remove the guard to do that type of work because the guard was in place. They were trained about guarding that leave the guards in place. Don't remove them. Evidently it wasn't something that was systemic. So there are those times that it's just part of doing the job and you have to watch out for that. Sometimes that sometimes in an organization where it's very old knowledge, very shared knowledge, that sometimes they'll teach a shortcut that may not be safe because it's just always worked that way. And we have to be careful about that, of recognizing it, finding it, and correcting it so that we don't have that systemic knowledge of it's okay to bypass that safety rule. And as supervisors or as leaders, do we look and see that when things get crazy, When things are not going the right way, if the equipment isn't working the right way, are we doing it the right way or are we finding a shortcut that is mostly safe or maybe thought to be safe? And I know in fast manufacturing, wherever things are moving really, really fast and you really have to get a massive amount of product or parts created as fast as you can to make a profit, That those are the times where we have to be most careful about having the right guarding in place or having the right process in place because inevitably that machine at some point will jam. That piece of equipment will not work the way it should. That piece of equipment may start making a product that is out of spec. And there's certainly ways that you can find out to bypass the safety devices to either fix the issue. Maybe you just reach in real fast and unjam it. Maybe there's a way of shaking it or, or putting your hand in there and removing something or shimmying it to make it work better. 
But those were the things the safety professionals were always trying to look for. We're always trying to convince people that just because it's worked for 10 years, just because someone has done it and never gotten hurt, doesn't mean we won't have someone hurt. Now, I remember coming into an organization where there was a lot of equipment that was making boxes and cutting paper and things like that. And you would walk around, you'd see people reaching into a guard or trying to bypass a guard and you'd stop them. Please don't do that. We're going to educate, train, try to figure out why this behavior is happening. And you ask the question like, well, why have you ever seen someone get hurt? And the amazing part to me was, yeah, I've I've saw my friend get hurt doing this, but I'm probably faster than them. Mind blowing to see it happen, to actually see someone doing it that had seen someone else get hurt doing it, but they had the fundamental belief that they wouldn't get hurt, that they were faster than the equipment, that they were better than the equipment. And that's a hard behavioral battle to fight. You have to constantly talk about it. You have to constantly educate. You have to constantly enforce. And unfortunately, sometimes it is that termination that you have to make for someone who won't protect themselves in that situation. Sometimes you can just do the education and people understand it and they go, you know what? That is smart. And we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to stop making those unnecessary shortcuts, especially when the company isn't pushing for it and demanding it. And that's a great balancing act of, yeah, we need to get stuff out the door. That's how we make money here. But we will not accept someone getting hurt while doing it because we have the methods, we have the engineering, we have the ways and the mechanisms to work safely. So anyway, a little soapbox there on machine guarding and behaviors that the only way we can change that behavior is setting a very, very strong example. And it's everybody has to set that example. When maintenance comes out to do that work, they're doing their lockout tag out. They're not just trying to bypass it and go faster. Supervisors are not bypassing the system. Other team members out there are not bypassing the systems. They're turning it off. They're waiting. They're reporting. They're using any tools that are available because sometimes you can create a tool that will safely help fix an item or unjam a piece of equipment and put no one in harm. Rather than just doing it, let's put together a team. Let's figure it out. That's a great problem solving. Okay, this piece of equipment always jams. Why? Is it in, Can we fix it? Is there an upgrade? Can we engineer this out? If not, how do we find a tool that will help us? How do we find a new process? If it's always jamming, do we need to have redundancy? Why not just have an extra machine that when this one goes down, the other one is still running, so we're making our rates? There's ways that we can do it. And we have to be able to set that line that we will not accept someone getting hurt as part of that process. Well, anyway, a little bit of my soapbox there. As we come to the end of the week, something cool that happened is that, of course, this is October Fire Prevention Month. And so we're coming to the end of Fire Prevention Week as this podcast releases this week. And they're focusing on cooking. And I think that's very important because uh, too many young people are hurt in the kitchen because either over-assuming how much risk or over-assuming what they can do. So, of course, we want to reduce fires from cooking. So a few things is 
not to add water to a grease fire. Put the lid back on it, turn it off, because water will only spread it. That oil will splatter and the fire gets massive. Some great videos that demonstrate that. Make sure that when you're handling hot liquids, if you have a young child, if you're boiling water, if you're cooking some hot grease, if you're, if you're cooking, keep them around three feet away from that stove and oven. You don't want that to hit them. You don't want to accidentally drop it. You want to keep that clear so that if you have a young child who's not ready to learn quite how to cook on the stove yet, set them aside. Make sure they've got a, a, a zone that they know that they need to be safe. Make sure your smoke alarms are working. And of course, make sure that you have a plan. There's a fire. There's a way you can get out of your house or wherever you're at. Find a safe location to take a head count to account for everyone in your family. Very important. So, of course, until next time we chat, stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Leading and Learning Through Safety podcast. Join the conversation on the internet at www.thesafetydude.org or on Twitter at TheSafetyDude. As always, all opinions are my own and not affiliated with any business entity. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. It is not a substitute for proper policy, appropriate training, or legal advice. I always encourage you to learn more about safety regulations and examine the facts with your unique perspective. This has been the Leading and Learning Through Safety Podcast. <laughs>